Welcome to this episode of Litigation Briefs, Media Shorts on Law and Courts. I'm Scott Dodson, a distinguished professor of law at UC Hastings College of the Law and the director of the Center for Litigation Courts, which produces this series. It can be hard to imagine, but not too long ago, litigation wasn't particularly complicated. When the federal courts were created at the time of the founding of the Constitution, the typical lawsuit was one person suing another person for a cow. Even harder to fathom is that those kinds of simple lawsuits still dominate the court dockets even today. But the 20th and 21st centuries have often seen, also seen the rise of the big case, including mass torts. These kinds of cases from asbestos to opioids get lots of media attention. Is the legal system up to the challenge of resolving the claims of the many individuals affected by a mass tort? How? Here to help me with these questions is my guest, Miriam Gillis, the Paul R. Verkeil Research Chair and Professor of Law at Cardozo Law School. Miriam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Scott. What's a mass tort? Good question. Um, a mass tort, I think, is exactly what it sounds like. It's uh, litigation that follows a widespread harm-causing event. So, for example, when a lot of people are injured by a defective product, imagine a car where the gear shift unexpectedly goes from uh, drive to neutral, um, or uh, an environmental catastrophe. So think here about the BP oil spill. Um, or a widespread toxic exposure. You already mentioned asbestos, that's a toxic exposure. So that was tobacco or uh, uh, most recently the Roundup litigation uh, or a harmful drug or medical device. Think Vioxx or breast implants or opioids, which you also mentioned in your introduction. These are all mass torts. Um, and today, um, I think you're right, people are still doing one person uh, uh, against another for a cow, but these sorts of mass torts uh, are, are really becoming incredibly important on the federal docket. By some estimation, um, one quarter of the federal civil docket consists of cases, uh, mass tort cases such as these. Um, and it isn't altogether surprising if you think about it, because you know we live in an era of mass production and distribution. We all eat the same foods, or prescribe the same medicines, or subject to standardized contracts, and use really identical products in our lives. And so it's not so surprising that uh, defects travel through the community and can harm a lot of people. And, um, and then we end up with a mass tort. Let's talk about how persons harmed by a mass tort can sue for compensation in the courts. One option is to sue individually, right? Yeah, of course. Uh, and that often is an option that people take. An injured person can find a lawyer in their own community and file suit usually in state court, but sometimes in federal court. And there are lots of good reasons to do this. Um, the plaintiff and her counsel can retain control over the case. They keep it in the local state court so it's convenient um, and close to the incident and the evidence. Uh, and they decide whether and how much to settle if a settlement is in the offing. Uh, but there are lots of downsides to suing individually as well. Um, and I think those are important to keep in mind. The big one is cost. It's just incredibly expensive to adjudicate any case, but a mass tort can require expensive experts and discovery that most people um, and most lawyers may not want to, 
take on, especially if the damages that they might secure at the end of the, uh, the litigation rainbow don't justify all of the expense. So individual litigation is always an option, but the cost benefit sometimes makes it not so much of an option. So what's another option? Well, you know, another option, since we're talking about mass torts, uh, is to bring a class action, to bring all of these plaintiffs together and um, allow them to uh, combine their resources so that they can litigate the case against a powerful defendant, prove up the damages uh, of the injury and the damages um, through a class mechanism. Um, if a class is certified, if a master class is certified, a, a group of representative plaintiffs is authorized to adjudicate the legal claims uh, on behalf of all of the injured parties. And again, here the stakes are high, right, for both sides, but the rewards are also really, really high for plaintiffs and their counsel. So we might see um, class actions attract a lot of lawyers, maybe even more competent or better quality lawyers uh, who are willing to invest in litigation to front the, these costs in the hopes of earning a high percentage uh, in the event of a recovery. But the difficulty, and the reason this is probably not so much of an option, is certifying a mass tort class action. The rules surrounding class actions, in particular the federal rule of civil procedure 23, is only available when there are common issues of law or fact. And the problem with most mass torts is there's often individualized issues surrounding causation or reliance or even the injury uh, that the, the alleged defect caused. And that can make it impossible to class a case. And let me just give you one example. In the early 1980s, there were several thousand tort cases brought by women uh, who, uh, who were dealing with uh, the aftermath of the Dalcon Shield, which was a birth control device. They brought this litigation, these lawsuits alleging that the Dalcon Shield had actually caused them to become infertile. These are pretty serious tort claims. Um, and a district court in the Northern District of California said, this is too many individual cases. You know what we should do? We should just have a national class action. And the judge, sua sponte, certified a Rule 23 national class action, a mass tort class action. And he was almost immediately reversed by the Ninth Circuit, who said, there's, there's no finding here that there are common issues that, that predominate over the individualized issues like injury and reliance and causation. Each of these cases has to be adjudicated individually. And so this is one of these early cases that's kind of led us to believe today that Rule 23 is not really available in the mass tort scenario. Well, then what about multi-district litigation, consolidating a whole bunch of individual cases in a way that avoids the problems with class actions? Yeah, that's where all the action's at today, I think. Um, Congress enacted a statute, 28 U.S.C. Section 1407, that authorizes a panel of federal judges to transfer cases that are filed all around the country and federal courts all around the country uh, where those cases involve common questions of fact. Um, and it, this consolidation uh, is for pretrial purposes only. So what this means is that uh, we can aggregate all of these individualized cases that are, that are uh, filed everywhere into one of the 94 district courts uh, in the country. Um, and the panel has been very, very active in recent years, transferring lots and lots of cases. It usually sends mass tort cases to the court that is nearest to the site of the, of the disaster or where the most cases have been filed. 
uh, or where there's just a kind of a you know gravitational pull uh, to the case. So for example, in the BP oil spill, the panel uh, centralized the MDL, all the cases that came out of that uh, oil spill in the Eastern District of Louisiana, the center of gravity for all of the cases arising uh, against uh, BP. Um, a couple of things to keep in mind with multi-district litigation. Once the panel transfers all these cases, the original court loses jurisdiction uh, and only regains jurisdiction if the case is remanded for trial. The transferee court, the place where the panel sends all of these cases, assumes authority over all pretrial practice, including discovery, motions to dismiss, motions for summary judgment, Daubert hearings, class certification. So it can be a pretty robust uh, procedural bucket that gets sent over to the transferee court. And what about alternative forms of dispute resolution, things that are happening outside of general civil litigation? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the alternatives to ordinary litigation remain available in mass torts, at least theoretically, right? So um, arbitration, bankruptcy, which we saw in asbestos, um, regulatory uh, uh, resolutions, like what we saw in tobacco, sometimes uh, compensation funds, what we saw in the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund uh, or the Gulf Coast Claims Facility in the wake of uh, the BP oil spill. Each of these are, are alternatives to, um, to litigating mass torts in the, in the court system. I think they each have some positives and negatives. So if you give me, give me a quick minute to sort of run through those. I think one positive is surely the possibility that some of these might be more efficient than the civil litigation system, right? We all think that the civil system runs a little slow, right? There's a process takes a while. Um, and so if we want to sort of, you know, prioritize getting recovery into the hands of injured victims as quickly as possible, it could be that some of these alternatives are better. Um, uh, but it's, it's not necessarily the case. Um, it, you know, it, I think for every example of, of a sort of quicker recovery, there's some, some things to be concerned about. So for example, um, you know, the use of private arbitration to resolve mass torts um, you know, might be faster, but the truth is it might also re result in far fewer claims being filed because bringing in arbitration means going at it alone uh, because there can be no aggregation in the arbitral forum. And so you're sort of doing it on your own. And that goes back to our first question about, you know, why, why not sue on your own? People can, but it's expensive. And so it may be that lots of cases are just not brought because it's not worth it given the, the nature of the claim. Bankruptcy too, um, and I think we saw this with, this, with asbestos, may, uh, may leave some claimants who have not yet manifested injury out in the cold. They may not be able to recover. Um, and regulatory responses to mass harm, which I think we all sometimes hope for, um, require moving the massive machinery of the administrative state or even harder trying to get Congress to enact legislation, which these days is quite difficult. So, you know, as, as much as we like to talk about these alternatives being faster, cheaper, um, better, you know, it's, it's, it's no wonder that litigation remains preferable, at least for some plaintiffs and some lawyers. Are these options discrete or mutually exclusive or can they be combined in different cases? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Um, you know, I think they can. Uh, so for example, multi-district litigation often contains class actions. Um, for example, the Viox MDL, which was a huge MDL over a pharmaceutical drug was made up of injury cases, people who 
had been injured or alleged that they'd been injured by taking Vioxx, along with a few consumer class actions with plaintiffs alleging that they would not have purchased the drug or would not have purchased it at the price they purchased it at if they'd known about the dangerous side effects. So lots and lots of MDLs have both injury claims, real injury claims and consumer claims kind of up, uh, running in tandem within the MDL. Um, also, it's important to keep in mind that the JPML has no transfer authority, the panel has no transfer authority over lawsuits pending in state courts, even if these do share common questions of fact. And this means that for each MDL, there can be hundreds or thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of factually related cases in the state courts that are not subject to consolidation. Uh, this is true in the recent Roundup case. Uh, so even as something like 500,000 cases were consolidated in the federal MDL, there's still over 100,000 individual cases pending in the state courts. So we often um, have different systems working in tandem or in parallel, um, even in the litigation system. Um, but I also think there's more we could do to combine some of these approaches. Um, I've argued in a few recent papers that we should be able to overcome some of the resistance to uh, classing uh, mass tort cases if we focus on Rule 23C's issue class uh, to try to resolve a common issue facing all litigants. Uh, so for example, does drug X cause injury Y? Um, you know, generally we think that that kind of uh, mass tort is not gonna be subject to uh, class certification, but if we were to just use the Rule 23 device to resolve one primary litigation issue, we could do a lot of work and resolving these cases uh, more quickly. Do you have any other uh, thoughts on how we can improve the law's approach to resolving mass torts? Well, you know, this is probably going to be like the issue of the next decade or two. Um, it, it's it's a really tough nut to crack how to how to resolve how to use the law to efficiently and fairly resolve these sorts of claims. And I think this might sound counterintuitive, but I think we should actually have more faith in the adjudicatory process and put more liability issues within mass torts to juries uh, with the sort of concomitant publicity and transparency that would result. Um, I think we're so afraid of binding adjudication in these cases that we've literally settled for kind of second best justice uh, over the past few decades. Uh, and I, I think second best justice is, is is exactly what it sounds like, and we, sh we should we should try to do better. So again, you know, my idea is to put greater reliance on Rule 23C's issue class, forcing the parties to present their best case um, to the jury and let the jury apply the facts to the law um, and decide a key liability issue. Um, you know, and, and this would be litigation that occurs in public and forms a part of the common law. Uh, I think that's a great idea. I think that others have other ideas about uh, about uh, you know making sure that we have greater transparency. I think a bad idea um, is to uh, is to allow these cases to uh, to sort of fester or to settle too quickly. Uh, it's certainly true that we want to get money into the hands of people who've been injured, but there's a cost to doing it in ways that are that are too fast and don't really result in the sort of publicity that I think is needed to ensure not just that these claimants recover, but hopefully that we can try to reduce the number of mass torts on a going forward basis. Well, Miriam, thanks for being on the show and for helping us understand how litigation can resolve mass torts. Thank you for having me. 
This episode was produced by the Center for Litigation and Courts at UC Hastings College of the Law. If you enjoyed this episode of Litigation Briefs, I hope you'll tune into future episodes. In fact, I hope you'll consider subscribing to our YouTube channel and audio podcast, which can be accessed through the Center for Litigation and Courts website at sites.uchastings.edu CLC. While you're at it, encourage a friend to do the same. This is Litigation Briefs, respectfully submitted, Scott Dodson.